everyone, and welcome to the Novel Discourse podcast, where we discuss great stories um, and what makes them great. I am Sam Clark. I'm writer and host, along with my co-host, Andy Gotelli. Andy, how are you doing this evening? Pretty good, man. I'm pretty stoked to talk about this uh, timeless childhood classic. I had not uh, revisited this in many years, so this is going to be a really excellent conversation. I'm very Neither excited. Neither have I. I have not watched this movie um, probably since some sort of a watch party or slumber party in middle school or high school or something like that. So watching it with fresh eyes, um, watching it not only as an adult, but as a writer was an interesting experience for me. Um, the movie that we're talking about, of course, is Sandlot. Um, this is, you know, I, I guess you could say from our generation, this is a timeless classic. Um, I think pretty much any kid in the 90s has watched this and rewatched this. Um, and for some of you, this was probably a go-to movie to just just completely burn out the VHS on uh, over the oh, years. Yeah. I think I broke, I legitimately broke a copy of this VHS. We had to rebuy this movie. It came in the yep. sweet, uh, the bubble case, you know what I'm talking about? Like the white plastic oh, yeah. that like, would pop open and closed. Oh man, yeah. that's when you knew it was a banger when it got one of those. Absolutely. Um, this movie, you know, it, it was interesting because we, we were talking about this movie earlier this week. I, I think we, we called it iconic. And the more I started reading about how this movie originally performed and kind of the reception, it, it really falls more under the category of a cult classic because yeah. it had a small budget. Um, it performed well in the box office, but it wasn't um, just an absolute blockbuster. Um, and it really took off on VHS. It took off when it started kind of growing, ha having a following among the younger audience. Um and, and I found that to be very interesting. It really wasn't until much later after it was produced and, and went out that it really took off. Yeah, like thinking about it now, even like it's not a particularly amazing theater experience, I wouldn't think. Um, even movies at this in the, from the same time period, like uh, for kids, like Space Jam, it was a really like kind of flashy visual, like the combination of live action with animation made it really interesting. Um, this movie is truly like a blockbuster classic, like the the store blockbuster, not the 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 concept of a blockbuster. Um, I remember this movie being uh, almost waitlisted at our local blockbuster in suburban Dallas in the in the late '90s, where it was just like always out for weeks at a time. This was very much a staple of. Uh, this felt really in a beautiful sweet spot where parents love this movie, kids love this movie. Uh, it had humor that was accessible both to children and adults. And I think something that I really latched onto this time around, being an adult, watching it now, and in fact, being the same age now that I was when my father would have rented me this film when I saw it, which is kind of a, tri a trippy concept to even consider. Um, this movie really is like written and told narratively from a child's point of view. And you really don't pick up on that when you're a kid. You just view that as like, this is just the reality of this film. Um, it's only once you're an adult and you have kind of the world knowledge and the historical knowledge of kind of the time period this movie's set in that you come to understand that like, yeah, this is all very like kind of surrealist and right. bizarre. Um, and, and not to get too much into it, but Getting into this film, I also went back and watched The Sandlot 2 uh, because it was on the same uh, 
not that I would ever illegally stream a film that would be stealing and I would never download a car. So I would never download a movie, but, um, Sandlot. You got two. a two for one at Walmart is what you're exactly, telling me. You, precisely. You went, the, you went to the $5 bin and you found, you know, the Sandlot one and two. In, and, in a dual uh, pack. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and what, what sucks about Sandlot two and compare compared to this movie is that it, takes that concept that kind of magical realism of the first movie and just makes it so that it is real so like everything that in the first movie you can identify as that's not really what happened that's how these kids are perceiving this in the second one they're like no benny the jet rodriguez had magical shoes that made him able to run fast and jump high with magic which is like not it's almost like the people that wrote the second one did not understand this film it's very fascinating but i'm really excited to get into this i it, it's gonna be really cool yeah and, and you brought up a good point which is the narrative perspective and that was one of the first things that i picked up on when we were watching the film is um you know from a narration perspective you you touched on that this is told from a child's perspective and it's obviously narrated by an adult. It's actually narrated by the director of the movie uh david nicky evans who also co-wrote it and digging into some of the scenes and uh is this taken from his life like is this supposed to be like a true retelling of his life right there are scenes in the movie that actually are depictions or they are based off of things in his life so some of the characters are based off some of his childhood friends um the wendy peppercorn scene is based off a real lifeguard that you know he knew or was at his pool growing up yeah um as well as uh hercules you know the dog that was that was there was a real dog named hercules that you know attacked one of his i believe it was his friend or his brother when they were playing a game of baseball neighborhood dog that you know was in a yard that was adjoined to where they played baseball so this is very almost directly inspired by the person who made this film and it, and and i think that is part of where the magic comes in is because you know you talked about how there's a realistic element to it. And I think this really taking a certain kind of uh, structure with the coming of age story and making it more like a memoir or like a series of memories when you're a child, right? So like when you're thinking about your childhood, you don't think about it as like, well, then this happened and then this happened because that happened and this, right? It's, it's chunks of, I had a really good year or two years going to this school, or I had this great friend and we, you know, we had a great summer together and here's some of the things that happened and they yeah. may or may not be in, in direct order. So it's really just kind of a, uh, a collage of events. And that's kind of how the movie is, is pieced together. And I think that's, that's really where some of the nostalgia comes in. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I also think that it lends itself to the idea that, uh, you are somewhat dealing with an unreliable narrator, not in any kind of nefarious way, but just because one, it's uh, their memories of one person from a long time ago. And two, um, children are inherently like super emotional as opposed to adults remember things more like these are the series of events. And I noticed immediately in this movie uh, kind of the emotional weight of a lot of these events for the narrator. So uh, right off the bat, when he goes to the Sandlot for the first time and he just shows up, he doesn't know anyone, and he just has his like horrible plastic glove and like super lame long billed hat. 
And I remember being in that situation where like you see a group of kids playing outside your house and you're like, uh, I'm going to go try to play with them. And so you just kind of try to like go make your, it's like a very animalistic, like you just try to make your presence known and hope they accept you. Um, and then they hit the ball to him and he messes up and he just runs away. And he's just like, my life is, he's running home. He goes, my life is over. And that is just the most, uh, I just, I immediately gripped onto that as like, dude, I know exactly how that feels. Cause when you're a child, you just do not have perspective on the temporary nature of things or, Hey, that doesn't really matter. Or the, the opinion of these five people means nothing. You have none of that. So you're just like, well, I might as well just go jump off a bridge because these six kids that live down the block from me in San Fernando in LA hate me now <laughs> or, or not even hate me. Just like, don't think I'm cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a totally different like set of paints than you would paint a picture now in your adult life with your, it's very emotional language. Um, and every part of the story is told that way. The tone of the conversations with his stepdad where uh, he's trying to be like incredibly polite and almost professional with his stepdad. And the stepdad is who I, I thought, uh, I can't remember who the actor is that plays his stepdad. Dennis I think Leary. it's Dennis Leary. Yeah. yeah. Dennis Leary does such a good job of like portraying this dude who's like doing his best to like, you know, play a fatherly role, but it's not your kid, but you're, it's a, there's a weirdness there. And they capture that really well without putting a scene of dialogue in here where he's like, you know, Karen, it's not my child. You know what I mean? Like saying it, they do a lot of showing, not telling with the emotional notes of this movie, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. And, and, and that's something I actually wanted to touch on it because one of the ways that they structured this movie is the use of narrator, which is an extremely important decision that writers are going to have to make not only in, you know, whether it's, whether it's their books or their screenplays is how much are they going to use the narrator? What's the, the style and the tone that the narrator is going to be using? Who's narrating it, right? It's going to be done really poorly. Like sometimes you see a movie with the narrator and you're like, this is awful. Like, Yes. And so one of the choices that they made in this movie was they were going to be very direct with their narration and they're going to tell you everything you need to know going into the scene. And they really use that to get the ball rolling quickly, which is really important for a pacing of this genre, you know, a, a children's coming of age tale. The first five minutes of the movie is the narrator primarily talking about moving into town, not knowing anybody. Um, whereas if you were watching an adult film, you know, the one that I was thinking of earlier today is like, um, you know, like if you're watching uh, like The Departed or something, and like it, if all these intro scenes, they just had like, they were just describing exactly what was, what was going to happen and ending each narration scene was, and you wouldn't believe what happened next. Right. The audience would not, would not be latching onto that. But for children, that's a, that's basically the movie version of a page turner, right? Right. It's, now you're glued in and seeing what's happening. Whereas, in contrast, Dennis Leary's character, which, like you said, there was a lot of nuance to that role. It's not told from his perspective, but he is delivering that that you know I'm I'm as uncomfortable as you are, stepdad yeah. type role without without you know directly telling you that. Um, so that's actually you talked about watching, you know, as as a kid versus watching it now. That's that's one of the things as an old adult that I picked up on is as a kid you watch this movie and you think of Dennis Leary's character as the kind of standoffish stepfather, but I watch it now and I'm thinking 
he is as comfortable in this situation as you know he's, uh, he's definitely know. trying like i definitely right. i definitely it definitely came across to me it's like dude he's not a bad stepdad or anything he's just like he's doing the best he can uh the kid is clearly like the polar opposite of who he is like he was clearly a, a big baseball player he's kind of like a business guy now and his son is um side note dude they had the sickest erector sets in the 60s i was every time i watched this movie even as a kid i was so like fuck why don't we have some erector sets like that he's got like these giant metal pieces i'm sure that was like super dangerous and like they can't sell that to children anymore but i was so jealous even at the time that they had that kind of stuff um one thing that really struck me about this is there's a lot of pieces of this uh story and reality that at the time i accepted just as face value this is the setting and now i question if this was uh rose tinted glasses of the of the author like thinking back on his life or if the studio wanted them to rewrite some pieces of it to make it more accessible so i'll give you a couple examples one is uh this is 1962 the lack of racism yeah and just the the not even I, I don't need there to be open racism, but the the right, total right. desegregation of society in this movie where like they're at the barbecue and there's black families and white families hanging out with each other like California, even as its reputation is just like bastion of liberalism in modern America, like they did not desegregate schools at the statewide level until 1970. So we're a almost a decade away from black kids going to school with white kids and certainly in L.A., which is like historically one of the most segregated cities on the planet like the 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 whole concept of like yeah the black kid is their picture and the old black guy that everyone mysteriously thinks is a murderer but they let him live in the neighborhood anyway that's probably not happening the other one that really struck me this time which i never thought about before is these kids are 13 14 years old in 1962 and they're all obsessed with babe ruth which I'm not saying you wouldn't be because Babe Ruth is just like beyond iconic, but they're L.A. kids in, in the prime of Hank Aaron's career. Like Sandy Koufax is, is pitching for the Dodgers, their hometown team, maybe the greatest pitcher of all time, certainly the greatest pitcher of all time at that point. And they don't mention any other baseball player but Babe Ruth, which to me would be like if me and you growing up, and we're just like obsessed with Bart Starr. Like, I, sure, I'm not saying you wouldn't know who that was or you wouldn't think he was great, but like their total idolization. And I think maybe they had to select a player that was just like really iconically recognizable. Because right. if they if you put Hank Aaron in that same spot, it's not nearly as accessible for a person coming to this movie who doesn't give a shit about baseball. Um, and then definitely the weird collection of accents in this movie so like when the rich kids show up they all have like incredibly thick new york accents out of nowhere and like they came all the way from jersey to play yeah they definitely like rode their their cool beach cruiser bikes that they all have like straight from jersey to challenge these kids to a baseball game um yeah before, all those things you go on me. from that point about that was my last kids, one yeah that was my last one. thing that i didn't realize watching this movie from start to finish this has nothing to do with storytelling other than I remembered those kids very vividly, the rival baseball team. I did not know that they would show up for five minutes and then dip. Yeah, that was it. That's their whole role in the movie is to show up and be like, we're rich. You're not. You suck. Which, by the way, I think, again, I'm, I'm going back to the structure of the story. 
it speaks to your audience. It's knowing yeah. your audience, knowing the attention span and knowing the whole, the whole way that this story is structured is it introduces um, Scotty or Scott as he has, t- he has basically two main issues, like problems in his life. And that's, he's new to town. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't have any friends and he doesn't know or get along with his new stepfather. Dude, to the right. point, he doesn't have friends to the point where his mother comes into his room at night and is like, did you make any friends today? No, mom, I didn't. You need to make friends, which you're like, damn, dude, that is really, this must be a serious problem in their household. Your mom's You wonder, you wonder what, like, his, what his social life was back, back when he, before he moved to LA. Well, they kind of like, that concern. The, the weird, uh, and I don't know if this is a time period thing or a, a children perspective thing where like being smart is just like looked down upon like crazy they keep calling him an egghead they're like making fun of the fact that he's smart and they actually i can tell they recognized that because in the, again i'm sorry to bring up this terrible movie that is an insult to this series but in the second movie which is not really about baseball the main character is like a, a scientist kid and it's more about that than about baseball and it doesn't work, obviously, because it's like this movie's called The Sandlot. Like, it's about baseball. Like, please be about baseball. But I, I was struck this time around by the whole, like, stop trying to get straight A's and start, you know, getting in trouble. You're just like, I understand the importance of that. But, like, I wouldn't be telling my kid to not get straight A's. Like, that's – some of these kids can be delinquents. I don't know. <laughs> that's giving off some real Tim McGraw in Friday Night Lights type vibes, like, tie his hand to the ball type fatherhood there there's definitely some quest some moments of just questionable adult behavior in this movie like don't get me wrong i was a kid too and we did mischief dude if i was at a public carnival like small town carnival and there are kids that are like 12 years old with their cheeks packed full of chewing tobacco Bro, you're not getting away with that in the average, you know, white bread, leave it to beaver town. Someone's going to stop you and be like, where did you boys get this? They're like, because they're not like, let's go behind this building and smoke a cigarette. They're like running around with like a uh, the Ed, Ed and Eddie jawbreaker sized wad of chaw in their mouth, screaming like, big chief, the good stuff, chaw, let's dip. And then they start puking on everyone. You're like, where are the adults, dude? Like, <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I guess the excuse there is they thought it was big league chew if that existed back then. That was our replacement. Well, and they and they definitely like uh I do love what they what one kid says about it, which is that all the pros do it. It gives you a burst of energy, which is exactly like shows you how what kind of sponge a child is. Like any uh behavior that a role model of theirs does they instantly absorb as not only acceptable but like they have to do it um and actually just to like round out that discussion one of the reasons that um big league shoe was invented was because a major league baseball player hated that little kids thought chewing tobacco was cool and so he wanted to create he created that product because it looks like shredded chewing tobacco but it's gum so clearly like a that was like a cultural moment for sure where like because i even my my dad who was like a big baseball player played d1 baseball at texas tech um he told me similar stories where like you know when he was a kid trying trying to dip because the big leaguers did it and like yeah I, it's definitely accurate i was just struck by the fact that they did it so openly 
I, I certainly thought that the big le- that the burst of energy thing from Chew was true because yeah. of the movie. So I, I could, you know, kids are watching not only their idols, but they're watching these fictitious films that are poking fun at, you know, that trend. So, um, yeah, going back to the, the movie start and kind of these, again, we go back to structure. We go back to these needs that are announced in the first act with, uh, with with scott and moving to town um one other thing that struck me was you know you you talked about when he first shows up to the park and yeah. he meets the kids how benny is the perfect antithesis of scotty like yeah. what what he needs to become he's he's good at baseball which is kind of the MacGuffin of this whole story is ba- right. baseball you it, it's it's the movie is about baseball but it's not really about baseball. It's about childhood. It's about me. Well, like it's about baseball, a place you don't know. Baseball is effectively like the equivalent of manhood. Like to be good at baseball is to be good at life in this film. And so like Benny, by what we know by the end, to be a professional baseball player for the a, an MLB team in a child form, like he's already achieved some degree of like manhood. And obviously those two needs that you called out a moment ago with Smalls where like he wants to prove himself to his father and he wants to make friends. Benny and baseball offer this two for one, right? Like if he can, if he can become good at baseball, he will become uh, worthy in his father's eyes and he will have this, this team. And that moment we talked about a minute ago with the rich kids, that's a really important moment, I think, because it shows that Smalls is not only one of the team, but like there are other teams, right? And like the tribalism of uh, kind of being a small boy. And like, even we, I remember us as kids, like we had distaste for like other elementary schools in our small, you know, Dallas suburb for no reason. They were probably exactly like us living exactly the same lives, going to the same Sonic drive-in on Friday night. But that's just the nature of like your kind of natural human condition. So yeah, it's definitely a big piece of the equation, narratively speaking. Yeah, and- that kind of becomes the catalyst for the entire story is this, this pursuit of learning how to play baseball. And then that kind of becomes what like smalls has to learn to catch before he can really become part of the team. Right. Yeah. And that solves half of his problems. And then what the movie does is it basically, they decide that, okay, that's one problem solved. There's one more problem that's out there, which is his relationship with his stepfather, which they slowly kind of, they, for the most part, they they go into the fun and games portion of the of the three act structure, and they make that eighty percent of the movie, and then they revisit the relationship with his stepfather as part of the last bit of the story with the Babe Ruth ball, or as he calls it, the Baby Ruth ball. Right. And it's like he, it, like that thing that he's kind of left on the back burner while he's having a good time is now suddenly put in jeopardy by his desire to be one of the guys. Because right. he goes and gets the ball, and can I can we talk for a moment about the ridiculousness of the scene where Smalls is so uncoordinated that he cannot catch a baseball, and Benny goes, "Just put your glove up, and I'll take care of the rest." And he hits a baseball to left field with the decision uh, to the point where you can just hit him in the glove. That's amazing. Which I did not question as a child at all. I literally just watched that and was like, "Damn, Benny's really good at baseball." Like as if yeah. that's a a skill that baseball players have like if you're really good you can like 
hit a bird out of the air with a baseball bat. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And it speaks to the skill needed to catch a baseball with a glove, which is something you and I have talked about offline when we're discussing sports and which sports are entertaining and which ones are falling behind. But that is for a different podcast, which we will not be covering today. But yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, stemming from there, the, uh, the, the, the plots move forward so nicely with getting into uh, this kind of back and forth with all the, the kind of misadventures that the, the kids are getting into, um, of which there are many. And of those, you're getting, uh, in every one of those scenes, you're getting a quotable line. You're getting someone's favorite scene in this movie. And yeah. when, when this director-writer came to the board of this movie, you knew it was just, I've got all these ideas for my childhood. I'm going to basically probably make them a little funnier, maybe do a little bit of uh, creative liberty. And that is going to be the story. And that is a great use of, you know, writing what you know about, right? Yeah. You know, he got Take sued it. by one of the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like, was it, uh, it was uh, the kid, that, the kid that squints is based on Squint. basically yeah. like got made out to be, which interesting. Cause he's kind of like, Oh, he made me have to be a dork. I was like, I don't know, dude. Like, you married Wendy Peppercorn, had ten kids. Like, that's pretty awesome. You kind of turned yeah. out to be the, the coolest kid, the smoothest operator. Yeah, I think I I think that's more just not getting his his due in royalties or something of that nature. But I, you know, who who am I to say? Yeah, certainly. Then um, you know, uh, we talked about MacGuffin of baseball. I'm calling it a MacGuffin. Like I'm calling it, you know, a MacGuffin being something that the characters care about, but the audience doesn't really care about. Like sure. it's not a baseball movie. It's a movie about friendships and like having the summer of your life as a child and kind of all the memories that creates. Um, I found this really interesting. We were, we were talking about how well this movie did. We were, I was reading some, some of the critical, like some of the critics takes on this movie. And one of them was, uh, I think it was variety magazine or Vogue or one of, one of them was, was basically saying that, uh, they gave it like a four out of 10 because it didn't, it didn't have enough baseball in it. Like they were saying that that they, I guess they watched the first 10 minutes and were expecting it to be a sports movie. And then when there wasn't like a, uh, you know, a massive tournament at the end of the movie that they needed to win a great prize and, uh, or else somebody would get evicted from their home type thing. I guess that they were expecting the plot to take that turn. And when it didn't, they, discounted the movie entirely but that's bizarre i think like that was best, a very interesting take i feel like the best baseball movies are use baseball as a backdrop i mean f- to, to me the best baseball movie is field of dreams and there's not that much actual baseball in that film but it it uses the what what baseball has uh in spades is romanticism and kind of that apple pie americana and right. both of those films make tremendous use of that. And like uh, the iconic, like kind of emotional weight of like a father and son playing catch is something that no other sport can really lay claim to. Like, um, you know, I obviously you and I are probably bigger, much bigger football fans than we are baseball fans. We spend a lot of time offline talking about football, um, but you don't hear father and son throwing the football around uh, with the same kind of emotional gravity that playing a game of catch uh, in, in the baseball sense is given. So, yeah, that's very strange. I mean, you it is very, very weird to go back and read 
reviews of, of iconic films uh, much later because obviously like time does such interesting things to art at, at even in the moment and classic albums, classic books, um, you know, so many of the greatest painters did not live to see themselves become, you know, massively respected artists, things like that. But that's so fascinating that they wanted more baseball. Like, I think this movie's kind of perfect because it's like really tight. It's like an hour and a half exactly almost. Um, you didn't need to jam any more baseball in there. It's kind of like the baseball is in and of itself a little ridiculous. Like all the kids are obscenely good seemingly all the time. Like you never see anyone mess up a play really, except when it fits the plot, like small. Yeah. Um, they wax those rich kids like with ease, <laughs> like even though those kids are probably on travel teams with private coaching and the best equipment and all that stuff that, that doesn't come into play. Um, no, that's fascinating for sure. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, the last review I wanted to go over was Roger Ebert made this comment, and and I was like, wow, this is spot on. Um, he basically said that um, this is a summertime version of a Christmas story. Yeah, that's – wow, that is really well put. Yeah, because Christmas story touches on all the same things, which Christmas story is a children's movie because of its structure, because of its pacing, because it is that, you know, it – it falls this very choppy progression of these interesting stories and tidbits with humor wrapped up in them. And then if you are the adult watching, there's a little bit of a nostalgia baked in because um, it is a little bit of a timepiece, right? I yeah. Mean, the people that were, you, you keep in mind, this movie came out in 1993. So this movie took place, the, the, the events of the plot, I mean, took place in the 60s. So that was their childhood, right? If you had kids, yeah. you're, you're watching it. You know, it, it would be like if, you know, you and I had kids now and, or, you know, in 10 years and, and it took place in, in the nineties, right? Yeah. Like the yeah. late nineties. It's definitely um, the position my dad was in. Was it like, I mean, it's a little before his time. My dad was born in 64. Um, but certainly the same, your know, time moved a little slower back then. So one year to the next blit was a little more similar than they are now. Whereas like now we're like, oh man, summer 16, greatest peak. That was the peak of culture by 2018. It was dead. Um, yeah, my dad definitely had the like, oh, I remember all these things kind of phenomenon around this movie when you showed it to me. Let me ask you a question. Um, I was, you know, I, I was outlining some of the kind of critical elements of this movie. And one that kind of stopped me in my tracks was theme. I feel like when you're talking about theme, um, you know, some movies are very heavy handed in what their themes are. Usually if it's more for like, middle grade or like a young adult audience it could be overwhelmingly heavy-handed mm -hmm. um, i won't name names but <laughs> you know when when you're thinking about the theme of this movie and how it's presented what 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 do you think it is hmm i think uh i i over and over again i kind of come back to the idea of identity and it's it's definitely set in a time period of your life where your identity is uh it's when you become aware that you have one and you also become aware that you have no idea what it is and kind of every child wrestles with that like kind of understanding who they are and smalls is definitely wrestling with that in this movie um and we find especially in our adolescence we find our identity in in others in the people we hang out with and so we get to see him uh not only 
kind of absorb some of the pieces of the identity of the group, but he also gets to kind of like put some of his identity into them. Like when they're doing the whole try to get the baseball out, he's like, let me use my, my science to do this kind of thing. And um, so that's, that's kind of what I come back to over and over again. Um, and, and I think you see it in other characters too. There's, there's a very uh, heavy emphasis on the fact that like, these are all, all the kids are kind of doing baseball because they like baseball and their kids and they let and kids play baseball. And then there's Benny who like baseball is his identity and it's his life. And he is always going to be kind of the star player of whatever environment he's put into. And that's kind of why Babe Ruth comes to him in the dream. And that's why he puts on the PF flyers and goes over the fence to get the ball and all those things. That's, that's kind of what I came to. I, I would love to hear your answer to that question. As yeah. Well. So one of the one of the words I came up with or kind of phrases was like overcoming fear. And, mm-hmm. and to me, I think that whether it's going to a new oh, neighborhood, you'd hate, you'd hate the second movie so much, dude. <laughs> you'd oh, hate the man. second movie so I, much. I, I, based on what you've told me, both on this on this call and on other calls, I'm I I don't know that I'll get around to watching. The, after the after you tell movie. me your theme, I'm going to tell you. A piece from the second movie okay because you're going to understand why i said that just now go ahead well i think i i keep going back to the genre mm-hmm. and i think as writers it's really easy to get into like you want to write a movie for kids but then you fail to kind of ask yourself what goes into that right mm-hmm. i've talked a lot about pacing i've talked a lot about the structure um and some of the character web and how they went out designing that and i think that the theme plays into that as well because whether it's going to a new school, going to a new class, uh, joining a new team, dealing with overcoming some sort of social anxiety or fear is just an inevitable part of every childhood. And it's something that anybody can relate to, no matter what personality that you know child or teenager or adult has. And from, from the first scene on, it's our main character struggling to basically confront that reality of moving into town and meeting new kids head on. And he, when he first goes to the field, he's, you know, I think you call it like animalistic nature of like, he's kind of patrolling in the background, hoping they notice him. But again, getting into that, getting into that ebb and flow of meeting new people, uh, as well as fitting in with them and being yourself is something that he fails to do all the way up into, you know, the very end of the film. And then, yeah. it, you know, it, it comes to a crescendo when, you know, He's the one who has to, you know, go retrieve his father's, uh, his father's ball and 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 help, you know, Hercules get out from under the 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 fence and you know go ask for his ball back and and then tell his stepfather what happened. You know, those are all, uh, you know, that is very clear that the 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 Scotty we saw in the very beginning of the film would not be capable of doing that. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and I think they communicate that in such a beautiful way. The reason I said the movie, second movie is so bad is because they are so heavy-handed. So in the second film, the Hercules uh, eventually died. But before Hercules died, he had uh, some baby puppies. And one of them was named the Great Fear. And the Great Fear lives behind a giant wall of, like, uh, washing machines and dishwashers that have been erected like an outfield wall, like the the Green Monster in Boston. Right. And they are so heavy-handed about like, 
we got to confront the great fear. You know what I mean? So it's like they took exactly the thought that you're expressing and they were like, do you get it? Do you get it now that it's that we've named the dog fear? Do you understand? Oh. <laughs> like it's so yeah. horrible, dude. It's so horrible. Yeah, that's the um, thing that I I thought they did a really good job of of avoiding that, you know, heavy-handedness in this film. It was agreed. It, and that and that's part of what makes it enjoyable is when people think about this film, they don't think about the lesson learned. And rarely do people do that, right? Like themes themes should be undercurrents, right? They shouldn't be just spoon-fed to you. Uh, the movie when I was when I was thinking about most heavy-handed themes, you know, not to get too off track, but thinking about the, um, uh, what is the uh, the Matt Damon film where he has to go to space to help his child get health care? Oh, uh, I was it's like say... a, it's like a pro border, like opening the borders type. Oh, it's uh, like Elysium. About Elysium. Elysium. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like it came out at the same time as. Uh... District Nine, and they're like very similar visually, and I always kind of like mesh them together. But District Nine is so much better, and like in, in very similar themes. And I, you know, District Nine is, I think, a significantly better. Story. Oh yeah, like we can have another podcast whenever we want. But the point is, is yes, like you're d- delivering these lessons learned, and and making sure it's done in a way that is very natural and is something that would happen in real life is obviously very important. And I thought they did a great job of that. Um, you know, I there's a lot of great scenes in this movie. Um, I was, I was going to having... ask you, like, what are your, what, what, what do you consider to be like your two favorite scenes of this movie? So I'm, I mean, every scene you say in this movie is your favorite. It's hard to come up with a unique or original opinion because like I've said, they have, there's probably about eight or nine scenes in this film that are, that are someone's favorite. Right. Oh yeah. Um, I'm going to go the pool scene. It's my, yeah. my one scene, the Wendy Peppercorn scene. Um, I loved how you did not know. Um, I almost just called him. I almost just called him Smalls. Uh, squints. Only out here, Squints. Yeah, and then I almost called him like Wheeze or something. I, anyways, <laughs> squints. I haven't watched. Okay, I watched this movie once in the last ten years. So please cut me some slack. Yeah. Uh, squints. You know, you don't know what he's doing. You don't know what he's up to. Because you're smalls, you know what I mean. You are smalls in this. You're smalls. My favorite scene, you know, I I had a I had a few. I, the one that that came to mind uh, is is the pool scene, the windy peppercorn scene. Um, we we talked earlier about how this how they use the narrator to kind of give the audience, children primarily. Uh, a kind of page turning element. You won't believe what happened next or a preview about what's going to happen. Uh, but in this scene, they didn't. And if you forget for a moment that this is a children's comedy, you might actually think that Squints is in trouble. And I thought it was a beautiful use of uh, like the writer choosing when and when not to reveal information. Um, because I thought, again, that the, the kiss, the kiss basically was, was a great twist and yeah. it's 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 one of the most memorable scenes in the movie uh and then the cherry on top was when they're leaving the pool and she you know basically waves at squints i thought was great two two things really stuck out to me on this scene one is when he's on the ground and you don't know that he's okay yet um i i think they made a very deliberate choice to keep it light by having his friends be like he looks like a dead fish oh my god and that yep. that kind of like comical ribbing 
keeps you from like you are concerned but it keeps you from being like oh my god is this kid dead like did we just watch this child drown to death like which could really kind of mess up the emotional tone of the whole film two was um as an adult as so as a kid i i thought this scene was like super hilarious and also awesome um as an adult i'm kind of like is there anything wrong with what's happening here a little bit like I, and i don't want to be that you know a guy that's like you know because obviously this is very innocent right and she is clearly like she thinks it's funny and cute she ends up marrying the guy so all is totally fine i guess like my, my question to myself was like if these kids were like a little bit older this would not be okay at all like if this is like a an 18 year old or 19 year old kid who pretends to be hurt so that he can like force a kiss onto a woman that's real weird so oh, like yeah. I, that and was very... supposed to be so in this movie i believe they're supposed to be 10 years old and yeah so it is like totally innocent he has no like right that's the farthest any of them have ever considered going with a girl probably farther than most of them had so it's like it's all within kind of the realm of and i'm sure that because they knew the, the audience watching it would also feel that way that like oh my gosh what a bold and in, insanely far-reaching sexual act um that it would be okay but i did find myself being like that is kind of strange now that i think about it like a little bit but it is like super iconic scene for sure yeah and then my second favorite scene is uh i love the insult scene the insult scene being when the the rich kids show up to the park yeah going back and forth um i was reading this evening that that was ad-libbed really yeah and i don't know how Dude, I mean, maybe incredible. heavily heavily edited you know but apparently the kid uh who plays uh, Ham was that was you know he he was making those up on the fly so I thought that was really impressive. <laughs> Dude, the 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 fact that like the zinger is you play ball like a girl is like so perfect for the tone of like a bunch of ten year old boys like especially in this time period like that's so well done <laughs> and the gravity the gravity that that has on these people is so fascinating to look at now. Um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, that that that's it. Is it's it's again it goes back to knowing your audience. And I I I really I really struggled to think of given that given the kind of story this is, if there would be a better line. I don't think you could make a better line for that. No. Um so for me, I think the the scenes that I come back to over and over again are one, the camp out when they camp out in the treehouse, uh now, again, weird that everyone in the neighborhood apparently thinks that this old man who lives in this house is like a murderer who raises dogs that kill kids, and yet they routinely all sleep over in a treehouse that hangs over his backyard. That would be super terrifying to me as a child, but um, it's also awesome that they have a treehouse like that. Um, and, and Squint's telling the story of the beast uh, in this perfect child. Yeah, the, the, the most perfect childhood way of like, they're like way back in the day, like 20 years ago, like my old, my uncle, he was the, my grandpa, he was the chief of police back then. And as an adult, the details of the story get so much funnier. Like the, they, they claim in this story that the beast killed 70, 80, probably about 123 guys. And then the cops come and they tell him he has to chain the dog up. It's like, no dude, like, that dog's getting executed maybe on the spot. Like, I don't even know if they're bringing in animal control. They might just shoot a dog that's killed a hundred people, but 
And I don't know, there's probably consequences for that old guy, but it's told so perfectly. Um, the fact that like when he gets to the treehouse, the whole the classic s'mores scene where he's telling him like the instructions to make a s'more, and he's like, You roast the mallow, you put the mallow on the chocolate, then you stuff. I can't tell you how many just hearing you repeat it is like it's funny to me. Oh yeah. I mean I can't every dialogue in this time, movie is incredible. Every single time as a child that I made a s'more ate a s'more saw a s'more in public someone was like went through that routine of like then you stuff and would like take a huge bite out of it so obviously iconic and then a scene that really moved me even when i was a kid but as an adult even more so is when the one night a year that they get to play a night game is when it's fourth of july and the fireworks light up the field and they feel like they're big league players and they're playing um i want to say it's like a louis armstrong rendition of uh what a beautiful world america america the beautiful the oh. america sweet america and they're like kind of all transfixed by the fireworks and it kind of goes into slow motion um it's corny but i just like swell with patriotic pride it's like this group of children playing baseball under the light of fireworks like in the in the setting of kind of like the post-war boom you know like We've we've defeated fascism. This is the this is the rewards for it is that we we have our kids peacefully playing baseball. Um, so it's American. 1962, so we haven't gone to Nam yet. So like, this is like kind of the the peak of our victory lap as far as like being the good guys. Like no questions asked. We are 100 on the side of the righteous. Um, yeah. I love that scene. I to this day like sometimes uh even between what obviously i haven't watched this whole movie end to end in many years but i have gone back and just watched that scene on youtube many times because i it's like one of my favorite fourth of july type songs um and i just love that scene and i and it's a great moment of character development for benny because they're all uh distracted by the fireworks and like they love it benny is like dude i just like it because i get to play ball in, in the dark. It's the only time I get to play ball in the dark. And you're just like, damn, that's tight. This kid's that tight. Awesome. So the Sandlot, closing thoughts, anything else you want to add to, to this film? Um, I overall, like, it was just such a pleasure to revisit. I love this movie. I love the way it's told. Um, the bookend scene of uh, he's now an announcer and Benny's on the, the Dodgers and they, he looks out at the press box and gives them like, that's such a ridiculous thing, but it's great. Um, again, echoing this child like idea that you're going to be friends with your buddies forever, uh, which we know isn't always the case in real life, but it's great for this movie. Um, I, I love kind of the, the whole wrap up of this film is great. Uh, when they meet the old man and it's uh oh who's the actor that played like Darth Vader and he's in Field of Dreams uh, too. James Earl Jones. Or... James Earl Jones. Um and again the weird revisionist history where like he played with Babe Ruth. It's like Babe Ruth did not get to play with black guys. Like black guys were not allowed to play with Babe Ruth. Like that was not a thing. But um it is awesome. I the one thing now this is a weird moment for me I'm like on the edge of of having children of my own and so I view a, a lot of things differently than I did and when he goes if you boys come by once a week and hang out and talk to me about baseball I'll let you have this ball I was like no way would my parents let me go over to this 
old man, old single man's house alone. <laughs> so every week my dad's going to have to come meet this guy before I'm allowed to come talk baseball with this dude. But um, for this movie, it's perfect. Uh, I loved it. I think it is uh, the best compliment I can possibly pay to it, I think, is that it is absolutely a movie I'll show to my own my own children, hopefully my own son, if I have one. Sure. And uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. Do not see the second one. It is it almost ruins the first. <laughs> Isn't there a prequel? Is there a prequel we should watch out for too? Let me see. Uh, I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, so I don't know if they. Let's see here. See, oh, there is a prequel, The Sandlot Heading Home, another direct-to-video sequel starring Luke Perry as Tommy Santa Santorelli, who gets knocked back to 1976 from 2005 and relives his childhood. Oh God. That sounds horrible. Another prequel was announced on July 31st of 2018. And as of 2019, a TV series with the original cast is in the works on Disney Plus. We might have to do a second pod. Bro, update pod if they if they drop that Disney Plus prequel. It has the whole original cast. Shouts, out, shouts out to the entire uh, Sandlot universe. Dude, extended the Sandlot extended universe, including... Yeah. Uh, Shout out to the one they did with the, Luke Perry, the, uh, where it's a time travel movie. That's dude, they're really milking this franchise for the, all the its SCU, worth. SCU, the Sandlot Cinematic Universe, Bro, starting to take over. Uh, this has got to be so. It's I, I'm assuming it's Robert Gunter who, or is it David Mickey Evans who is the the dude who uh, this is his life is. So they're co-writers. Uh, David Mickey Evans wrote and directed, and then uh, Robert Gunter was co-writer. It's dude. But, I hope they're getting. Nick Evans is the one who, you know, several scenes, several gotcha. characters. Gotcha. Well, his, you know, shout out probably. to him because he's probably getting paid on all this stuff. So good yep. for him, man. Got to the bag based on just basically retelling Screka stories from his childhood. That's awesome. What well, about you? In, in the, I, I, I keep going back to structure, but again, I think that the best compliment I can pay to it um, is that. Yeah, in in my my age and my tastes have changed i'm watching this film kind of expecting it to be more homework but it was it was actually enjoyable like yeah i i really enjoyed it it was and there were scenes where i like chuckled out loud so definitely you know i think if we were doing a movie if we were doing a you know for talking about what makes great storytelling episode two about spy kids or something you know like another film that has a very linear structure like an you know like an adventure story or something um i think that structure would have been harder as an adult to follow definitely be entertained by it i think that this structure um of it kind of being a pieced memory you you were able to have you know five to ten minute sometimes a little bit longer scenes and if one scene isn't your thing then the next scene might be right and yeah all that just hilarious conclusion after hilarious conclusion and as you pointed out also building you know character and then by the time we reach the end of our story we have you know fully developed characters and a you know a meaningful conclusion i thought was really good so overall uh i want to do i want to do a one out of ten can i do a one out of ten yeah absolutely so again i when i do one out of ten i'm rating it on the scale of its genre right i'm not going to compare you know, a animated short to The Godfather, right? So we're we're staying right. in the genre. I'm gonna give because The Godfather Lock... insists upon itself and is bad. So right, right, uh, exactly. So, um, 
I'm going to say, I'm going to give it a solid eight out of 10, which is, which is pretty in the middle of the road for probably how most people view it. Um, I'm sure there's people out here that are clamoring that it should be a 10. I, the Metacritics say that it should, that it's a 6.6. I think that's pretty ludicrous. Again, as I said, I think a lot of the Metacritics were viewing it in the lens of something that it's not. And yeah, it, it totally and comes down to like, what is this movie for? Right? Like, if you are rating it one to 10 based on like your, and we had this discussion the other day when Rolling Stone released their 500 greatest songs of all time. It's like, oh. is this movie uh, important? I, I don't necessarily think so. Is it going to change the, did it push the boundaries of filmmaking? Uh, you know, did Scorsese wake up in cold sweats because the Sandlot came out? Probably not. Um, but as far as like, if you're rating it based on like the feeling that it gives you coming out of it and like it's rewatchability and like where, where it would hold a place in your, in your mind. Cause there are tons of movies that I've watched that I was like, wow, that was really bold of that director, blah, blah, blah. And then I never go back to it, you know, right. probably more important movie than the Sandlot. But for the, yeah, for that reason, I think I'm somewhere in that range too. Eight, 8.5. Um, it is, it punches so far above its artistic weight. It is so much more impactful than a kid's movie about playing Sandlot baseball deserves to be. It's, uh, it is well paced and it is, it has genuinely funny dialogue. Absolutely. And, and from a comedy, that's really all that you can ask for is and, don't and don't start to bore me and then make me laugh. And that's in writing and low key writing kids dialogue that sounds good is difficult. Like, Go back and watch some of those like same era ninety three to ninety eight like Nickelodeon live action shows where you have like adults writing dialogue for children and it's rough, man. Like they're just like it's truly the hey fellow kids type phenomenon. Um, Sandlot. But, but on that note, uh, we hate watched Smart House. Last oh week. yeah. So shouts out to Smart House. Dude, the Disney Channel had some some heavy hitters. The uh, what's the one where the kid does bank fraud and gets like a million dollars? Check. Yes, he and then a, he gets a million dollars and then proceeds to buy thirty at least a hundred million dollars of stuff. Yeah, it's like he buys like a private jet, like like which again uh, another to their Shouts credit, the bank that is, fraud. that's hitting a note that children definitely hit on like i remember being a kid and they'd give us like a homework assignment that was like how would you spend a million dollars and kids would be like i would buy a golf course a castle five hot air balloons and give all my each member of my family a hundred grand and you're like no that's not no like <laughs> what are you we talked ex we talked ex very explicitly about this is not going to be a hate watch type podcast right yeah. we wanted to talk about good writing we did not want to get into the like three frat guys in a room are nothing wrong with frat guys. I'm a former frat guy that, you know, just anybody can make fun of a film. Right. But and, with and, all that, and it's been done really well. We might there are, that for, for there are podcasts. There are tons of podcasts that are really talented comedians or really talented film critics kind of decimating poor quality films. That's there's, there are a million and all the good ones, the, the room Birdemic. Those have been done to death. Um, I think when you and I sat on the phone for a couple hours talking about how we wanted to do this, it was more about like, let's find 
what we love and why and why it works and what is the elements that make those things work that we can identify that are repeatable in other works of art, whether those be in TV shows or movies or books. Um, man, I, I'm just really excited. I think this, uh, while I was going through the process of watching this first movie, which I think was a good choice for us because it was very accessible, is easy to digest. It was, like you said, it wasn't like homework. It was very fun to watch. Um, I was already churning on all the, the future episodes we're going to get to do. So I'm really excited to, to jump feet first into this project. It's going to be really cool. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Andy, for joining. And um, again, we'll, we'll be uh, back with our next episode, which we haven't decided exactly what it's going to be next, but we'll have something in store very soon. Again, thank you. And um, until next time. Yes. And thank you so much. Uh, if you have liked what you heard, please make sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and a comment. It does help us climb up the charts of the various other movie-related, media-related podcasts in the world. Uh, also, feel free to leave a question or suggestion for a future film in a comment. Uh, we would love to hear from anyone out there who is like-minded or has uh, enjoyed what we've done. So thank you all so much. Have a great evening. Peace. Peace.